Last week we were in Acts chapter 9 and we saw a very massive change in a non-believing Jew. We saw Saul, the persecutor of Christians, we saw him become a Christian himself. And so this week we're in Acts chapter 10, if you want to keep the scripture open there. And we're going to see a massive change in a believing Jew. Because Peter will finally understand that God wants the good news to go way beyond the Jews. And so what do I mean by a massive change in believer? Because he, he is, after all, he's the top believer in Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church of believers. Why should he have to change? And it comes down to a simple word, prejudice. You go, well, that's interesting. Because you see, the Jews were very prejudiced. They considered people who weren't Jews to be dogs. That's what they would call them. Literally, they thought their only purpose was to be fuel for the fires of hell. And they're all unclean. And if you would go into one of, into one of their houses, a Gentile's house, just going into the house would make you unclean. And if the Gentile came into your house, well, that would make your place unclean. And this prejudice came from way back from there. Well, they understood it meant to be a child of Abraham because they could track their racial lineage all the way back to Abraham. And as well as that, they had the Torah, the law and the prophets. As well as that, they knew they were God's chosen people. We are God's chosen people. And they have a history of the things God has done, and you know, you go and read history, but you don't understand that for them, history was the story of their grandparents and their grandparents passed down in their actual family to them. And so that all adds up to them believing they were special and no one else is in their class. And you know what? They're not unique in that, are they? Because civilizations and people groups and tribal groups and nations have been manufacturing and propagating their unique identity since the beginning of time. We've got football tribes, we've got theological tribes, we've got philosophical tribes, political tribes, economic tribes, and this is almost endless. And that's why this story we're going to look at this morning is so incredible because it's a high point, its high point is that there is one place where there is no prejudice. There's one place where there are no tribes against one another and that place is God's family, God's kingdom. That is unique to the world. Peter began to speak, Acts chapter 10 verse 34. Peter began to speak, I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. You see, even though they had the Holy Spirit had come to them, uh, this point had not really broken through into the Jewish mind. 
they still had a deep unconscious bias against people who weren't Jews. Well, we've seen a, a few things happening. We've got the Ethiopian eunuch. He's from another country. He's converted, but then he's off to Africa. You know, we don't see him around the place. You've got the Samaritans. Well, God's come on the Samaritans. Uh, there's a bit of... Uh, but at least they're mostly related to Jews. But by and large, they had not broken away yet from a deep-seated distrust of everything not Jewish. And a comparable idea that's around in the open space these days is something they call white privilege. And people who've got other things in their mind, they say, white people just don't realise the privilege they have just by being white. That they can walk into any social situation, feel like they belong there, they don't have to explain themselves, they don't have problems with business, with banks, with shops, and people who've got other agendas make a big caricature about that. But it's a, it's a sort of a racial prejudice, a prejudice which is around. Well, what's God wanting to do in this story today? He's wanting to show the leader of the Jerusalem church, he's going straight to the top of all the believers, all the new Christians, he's going to top, show that leader there should be no prejudice in the kingdom of God. And we'll see there was, this brings out there's a slightly different message for people who aren't Jews and maybe the Holy Spirit will work in a slightly different way. And so our story starts with Cornelius a centurion. He was the leader of a hundred soldiers and probably one of the, like, top regiments of the Romans because it's the Italian cohort and you'd have 10 cohorts of 600 men and they could make up a regiment so there's a lot of soldiers around. In general, as history is very respectful of centurions. They're universally considered to be pretty good leaders and certainly Cornelius was one of the good guys. So we're in chapter 10 we say Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing and he gave generously to those in need and he prayed to God regularly. And so who have we got here? We've got a moral citizen. You've got a morally outstanding person. You've got someone who's doing all the good moral things that you can do. You'd be happy to move in his circles. You'd happy to have him as your friend and sit with him in the community organisations. And this guy is also interested in Judaism. He's maybe considering becoming a proselyte. He is worshipping Jehovah God. He's following the ethics of the Old Testament, things like giving to the poor. Hasn't gone the full hog to circumcision, but he's... And we'll see that he's doing his best to find God. He's doing his best to be right with God, but he's still not converted. He's on a spiritual quest to find God. He's a seeker of God, you might say, but so far it seems like it's all just his own effort. And he's, for me, Cornelius is an illustration of the morally aware, the good, clean, conscience person, the one who's working diligently to do all the good things that they think are necessary to be a good person. Someone who thinks... I'll just turn up one day at the pearly gates with St. Peter, I'll whip out the portfolio of all the good works I've done, I'll just hand them over and I'll wait for him to put the stamp on. Well, it appears as though God is pleased with those efforts, but we're going to see later that just having his portfolio alone is not going to get him in. 
it's not going to do the job. All that portfolio is doing so far is getting the Lord's attention. And all it really indicates is that Cornelius is shown motivation, he's shown initiative, he's shown determination to find righteousness, but he's not yet there, he's not yet converted. And that can be very much of an affront to that type of person, the morally sensitive person. Because many people who live a good life and they build up a big column of holy and spiritual and worthy works, they really are expecting that what they've done will get them into heaven. And they're not asking for anything more than what they deserve. They worked hard for what they achieved. They didn't cut corners. They didn't cheat. They didn't swindle or lie. So they're expecting that the work that they've put into spiritual things that they have chosen to consider important, they think that'll be enough. But it wasn't enough for Cornelius. It wasn't enough for Saul or Nicodemus, was it? Consider these guys, Saul and Nicodemus. They came to Jesus and they had moral achievements outstanding but Saul gets into trouble because God pulls him up and says no you're persecuting me and Nicodemus what about this he says you've got to be born again mate so all that immense list of all the good things you've done in your life they don't mean anything because put them aside and be born again that's so with that as a background let's carry on uh, verse 3 there. One day about 3 in the afternoon he had a vision and he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! And Cornelius stared at him in fear. In fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have, been, have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Well, Peter's moving in the right direction to get past prejudice because he's staying with a Tanner. And they were a bit socially unacceptable because uh, their contact with animal skins made them unclean and they weren't allowed to enter the temple or the synagogue. And this tanner was living near the sea so that he'd have water to use in tanning the hides. And I guess his beach wasn't the best swimming beach in the region. Anyway, orders come. So the centurion snaps into military action, uh, sends off two servants and a soldier. Because, you know, you get a soldier, people will listen to what you say. And then in God's perfect timing, we see what he does with Peter. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. That's a bit scary. And then a voice told him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. I wonder which reptile he's got his eye on. Surely not, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure 
that God has made clean. And this happens three times. And immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. And while Cornelius was wondering about the meaning of that, that vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, I suppose you just followed the smell, and stopped at the gate. In God's perfect timing, the men arrive at the gate at the right opportune moment. And so as we consider this vision, we've got to get to the point that Peter makes that the vision teaches that God doesn't show favoritism and it's not really about the eating of unclean animals. We know this because God, who gave the Jews the law, is not going to tell them something patently and obviously against the law. This is one of those cases where it's so obviously wrong that Peter assumes it's deliberately wrong in order to make a higher point. It's sort of a bit like a riddle, if you like. And then Peter, being Peter, has to have the event repeated three times. Think about three times in Peter. Three times he denied Jesus before the cock crowed. Three times Jesus asked Simon, Simon, do you love me? Before he said, feed my sheep. And interestingly, the cock crow, according to a Messianic Jew I was listening to, said that's the loud call from the temple to come to prayer. Where a man with a very loud voice calls out to the priests and the Levites and the people to come to prayer three times a day. Because real roosters, you see, weren't allowed within the city limits. I don't know if you're allowed to have them in Makkah. I don't hear very many of them. But we do know what a nuisance they can be. So Peter's still thinking about the vision and the Spirit says to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs and, and don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and he said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? So I give their, their blurb. The men said, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man, by the way, in, who's respected by the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And... Uh, Peter makes a step towards overcoming prejudice at this point because he then invites the dem them into the home and maybe he's bouncing off hospitality, which is a very high value in those days. But nevertheless, he knew he was going to have to explain things later on to the Jews back in Jerusalem. So then uh, Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. So in case you're wondering where is this story occurring, you can see uh, they've come down from Caesarea. They've gone down 24 miles, 38 kilometres to Joppa. And I believe you can even go there these days to the house of Simon the Tanner. It still exists. It's different having uh, history that you read about in books actually just down the road from you, isn't it? Ah, so anyway, the explaining about these things is going to come later. It goes up. You have to go to chapter 11 for that in uh, verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticised him and said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised men and worse still, you ate with them. Ooh, I've got to explain this. Anyway, before we do that, where did they go to? And there's an artist's representation of Caesarea 
it was the Roman capital of that region from 6 AD. You can see we've got ourselves a, uh, one of the distinctive things is the, uh, the port around there. Oops, is that the one? Oh, go back. Oh, that was good. <laughs> so that seawall that you will find there was uh, man-made and uh, they tell me that the Romans had invented concrete which hardened underwater. They dropped the rocks in, concrete around, hardens underwater. You can check that out and see if I'm right later on. And uh, another thing to notice is that Caesarea where they are there is different from another Caesarea. There's a Caesarea Philippi. See, it's, it's higher up, it's above the Sea of Galilee. So don't get those two confused. Uh, ex excavations have taken place in Caesarea since 1950 and what they found there is there's a Roman temple, there's an amphitheatre, there's a hippodrome of fair size because it seated 20,000 people. That's pretty big. There's an aqueduct. And interesting, historically, in 1961 they found a Roman inscription which mentions Pontius Pilate, which is the first mention of Pontius Pilate ever found that can be accurately dated back to his time. So archaeology just keeps finding the truth of God's word. The story goes on. Next day, Peter starts out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrives in Caesarea, which you now know where it is, and Cornelius is expecting them and called them together, called together his relatives, he's got his close friends there, all his buddies there. And as Peter comes in the house, Cornelius met him and fell down in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, look, I'm only a man. And when talking, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a, a large gathering of people. And you go, whoa, preacher's dream. Crowd prepared ahead of time by God, ready to hear your message. And so Paul, Peter gets into this, he makes an inspiring start. He said to them, you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit you. You go, way to go, Peter. <laughs> Hear your prejudice straight away. I shouldn't be here, folks. And besides, you're all unclean. Great start to a message. But I suppose he, goes, he recovers a bit as he goes on, or maybe he's just using a preacher's trick, you know, where you set up a problem and then you solve it. Who knows? So he says to them, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But... Very important, but but God has shown me that I should not call anyone, like you guys, shouldn't call you impure or unclean. And so when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Now, can I ask you, why did you send for me? And, and we all love to hear you know, some spiritual confirmation about our thoughts, don't we? And just think about it, Peter and Cornelius both had very obvious spiritual things going on to lead them to this point. They've both had, had angelic visions. And so Port Cornelius rolls out his one. Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, three in the afternoon, which is the time of prayer, the Jewish time of prayer, one of them. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God's heard your prayer, he's remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa 
for Simon who is called Peter, his guest in the home of Simon the tanner who lives by the sea. And so I sent for you immediately. Sent for you immediately. And it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. And so Cornelius confirms the message which his servants have already told Peter and Peter is freed to share the conclusion which we have in Acts 10 verse 34. Peter began to speak and said, I now realise how true it is that God doesn't show favouritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And as we saw in Acts 11, Peter has to explain the same thing again to those in the Jerusalem church. And when he does, amazingly, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't do it in the normal Peter way. And uh, that is, you know, put his, put his foot in it. He just stays calm and says, this is exactly what happened. And you know, if, if sometimes God does something through you and it's a bit different, and people say, why did you do that? You say, well, don't get upset, just, no, I got led here by this. Anyway, what comes after that is the first real sermon to non-Jewish people. Think about that. The first real sermon to Gentiles. Which means it's the first real sermon to us because that's what we are. When I spoke to the Jews started off with Jewish history. And Stephen, when he did his sermon, showed how the Jews had a history of rejecting and killing off the previous saviors and prophets, and they'd done the same to Jesus. And Peter, with his sermon, he justifies Jesus from the scripture. But now we've got people who don't know the scripture. And so what happens in this sermon? Peter starts with Jesus. He starts with historical Jesus. It starts with the recently departed Jesus. It starts with the news which is just in the public open space about Jesus. And it says, you know the message God sent to uh, the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. And he tells them, you know what has happened through the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. And you know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and he was healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. And he says, so St. God, you've heard the stories. You know it. And we're here to tell you that it's all true. We were there. We saw it happen. That's what they're saying when they say, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of, of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And then this reminds them of this core, core fact. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. And he was seen not, he was not seen by all the people, but he was seen by witnesses whom God had already chosen by us. Yeah? We were some of those witnesses. And we ate and we drank with him after he rose from the dead. And the spin-out fact is that we saw him after he rose from the dead and it wasn't a vision. We weren't out of our minds. We weren't on anything. It wasn't an ecstatic thing. It was a historical fact because we sat around the table with him. We passed him the falafel. We asked him for the salt. And we yarned lots. And this was just, this was not so that one day we could get 
uh, a job as tour guides in the Holy Land. No, this was for a reason, because there was a task to be done. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So he's saying, we're supposed to tell you about this, to tell you about Jesus. And that's because he is the judge of the living and the dead. And that means you ignore this information at your peril. And by the way, if you want to check out the Jewish scriptures for confirmation and validation, you're going to find they agree with us because now all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then what happens? Then the Holy Spirit comes. Comes slightly different from how he's come in other, other parts of uh, the book of Acts because there's no laying on of hands. Peter's, while Peter is still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all the people who heard the message speaking these words. It's the message. And the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And the speaking in tongues appears to be a fairly special proof for the Jews so speaking in a number of languages. And think about this. Not just for the Jews, but every nation thought that God only speaks in their language. Think about that. The Muslims believe the only language God speaks is Arabic. And so they grudgingly will translate the Quran so people can get the main ideas, but it's not, never the word of God. You can only have that in, in Arabic. And so the fact that at Pentecost... People heard the message of God proclaimed and the praises of God in many languages is confirming that the message is for every language. And I think it's also a reversal or a redemption of the Tower of Babel where God confused language because they were trying to usurp God. And you find that when your desire is to serve God, that he restores language, he restores understanding. And when we get to heaven, there will be no communication barrier, even though we'll have people there from every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And so Peter sees this and he's got the point that Gentiles are saved. And we note that they weren't baptised in order to be saved. They were saved first and they were filled with the Holy Spirit first. And then they just kept going in obedience Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptised with water. And they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so they, he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he said, stay for a few more days. So if we wrap it all up, what have we got? In Acts chapter 10, we've got the final eradication of prejudice in the Christian church for the early believers. Even those considered previously unclean can be in the church if they believe and they will receive forgiveness of sins. And all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Cornelius is now converted. The moral person who 
Forty had everything sorted, learned that being saved is not because you are good enough. It's about understanding that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags in comparison to Christ's righteousness and it's about accepting the free gift of forgiveness bought for us by Christ's death on the cross. And we can also learn from this Peter's first sermon to Gentiles how to witness to people who, who don't have a Jewish background. Just tell them about Jesus, about the life of Jesus, about the miracles, about the signs and the wonders, about the death on the cross and about the resurrection. And tell them that this message, that his message was a message of peace with Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. I mean, who wouldn't want to know that they're going to be right with the Lord of all? Your sins can be forgiven because what Jesus, the Lord of all, has done. But as one thing to consider before we go and wrap this up is that we need to take very seriously the need to scan ourselves to see if we have any prejudices within us because we need to show no favoritism ourselves and we need to understand that if we don't treat everyone equally then we might be negating the message of Jesus think about this one of the main reasons people don't take Jesus message more seriously is because of how Christians have lived over the centuries they haven't taken it seriously enough they've had massive blind spots of prejudice and I'll give you one story Mahatma Gandhi. Apparently he was very taken with Jesus' message and the Sermon on the Mount in particular spoke very deeply to him so he thought, I'll go to church. Turns up at church in England one day at the door and is informed quite clearly that this church was not the right place for him and he should find a more suitable church for someone of his colour. So in disgust, he realised the church was not living out of what he'd been reading and so there was no point in changing from being a Hindu. And the rest is history. Well, after Peter went back to Jerusalem and he related what had happened at Simon the Tanner's place, we have this liberating verse, a liberating phrase under which we all stand some 2,000 years later here in the eastern wheat belt. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Even to us here in Makkah, God has granted repentance that leads to life. If we will reface our lives, turn our faces, that is, to God, then we can have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> Gracious Lord, we thank you for the wonderful gift, the heritage under which we stand, being here in Makkah, so many miles away, so many cultures away, so many years away. Still you are the judge of the living and the dead. And uh, if we're in this morning trying to be right with you, thinking well, I've got to build up a portfolio to hand over to St. Peter at the pearly gates. Let's give up on that useless job and accept by faith that you died for our sins to forgive them so that you could hand over to us the righteousness of Christ and we could stand in that. So we praise you and we thank you for your work in our hearts this morning and we say yes to Jesus. 
Amen. Thank you.